0: Welcome back to the Locked On Marlins podcast. Hope everybody is staying safe and healthy during this crazy time. Still eager for baseball season to come upon us, but we are still in a wait-and-see mode right now. But hopefully baseball will be on the horizon pretty soon. Looking forward to the NFL draft. That, of course, is something that will be a nice little glimpse into the future and things we have to look forward to, of course, with baseball. That is obviously something that we're all so eager to see. I'm really excited to just see some of the young guys play. Also, today's Miguel Cabrera's birthday, and that got me thinking. Some of the older guys, this is their last couple seasons, or it could be their last season, maybe not Miggy, and he, Miggy was looking really good in spring training. I don't know if any of you saw. He was looking like He was five years younger. He shed some weight. His bat speed looked like it was recaptured a little bit. And he was pounding home runs to straightaway center field. It looked like the old Miggy. And man, how nice would it be to see Miguel Cabrera bounce back and have a really productive season once again. So this episode is actually going to be a little bit more reflective. Speaking of Miguel Cabrera, speaking of the older Marlins. And it's going to be about the trades that never were. And I usually don't like to ruminate in the past and look at things that could have been or could have happened. But in these two scenarios, I think the Marlins actually really dodged a bullet. And these two trades that almost happened, there's so many trades that we don't even know about that have probably almost happened over the last 10 years. And if we found out some of them, I'm sure we'd be like, "Oh man, why didn't they do that?" and I'm sure there'd be a bunch where we'd be like, "Wow, thank goodness." These two seem like they're more of the latter, and I'm going to get into it and what could have been if those trades ended up going through. The first one is one that most people know about, except I don't I haven't really seen anybody dive into what it would have meant if it went through, meaning what would have happened to the Marlins if that trade went through, what would have the implications have been short-term and long-term? So the first of the two trades I'm going to talk about is the Manny Ramirez almost deal to the Marlins. And this was a trade that seemed exciting on the outside, but when you dive into it, really would not have made much sense for the Marlins. However, if you look at where the Marlins were at this point, so the rumors were really escalating around the deadline, right around July 30th, And there were reports that it was basically almost a done deal. You had several writers and news outlets saying it was really a matter of crossing the T's and dotting the I's. And the deal that was reported by MLBTradeRumors.com was apparently the Marlins get Manny Ramirez in cash. Red Sox get Jason Bay and John Grabo from the Pirates. And the Pirates would get three Marlins prospects. That would be Ryan Tucker... Jeremy Hermida, and Mike Stanton at the time. Stanton was a freak athlete, obviously, largely unproven, and not really the center of the deal. He was kind of the last piece, but Ryan Tucker was a first-round pick by the Marlins in the compensation round, number 34 overall, was the number two prospect for the fish going into the season, and Jeremy Hermida was a perennial top prospect in baseball for several years, made his debut in 2005, as many of you know, had a couple productive seasons, still abbreviated season in 2006. 2007 posted an 870 OPS, looked like he was starting to turn into that player that many thought he could be. And then in 2008, when this trade was supposed to go down, he was about league average out there, about replacement level, but he was only 24 years old. So the Marlins would be giving up on a young outfielder that had a very, very high ceiling. Ultimately, we know how that played out, but at the time, it didn't seem like that was a guy that was going to be a bust. At this point, the Marlins knew they had something with Stanton, I'm sure. I don't think they knew he was gonna become a league MVP, but he was putting up major power numbers in A ball, albeit it was only A ball, but for a kid out of high school, the Marlins knew that he could develop into something And I truly believe he was the hiccup in the deal. The Marlins just did not want to give up on a kid that was off to such a hot start in pro ball when they're already giving up their number two prospect in Tucker and a young outfielder in Hermita. Manny Ramirez on the other side of things, still a very productive player, but was very disgruntled with Boston, was ready to go. But there's no way that he would have fit into that clubhouse, at least I don't believe so, with a bunch of young, impressionable players that were seemingly enjoying playing with each other very much. And it's hard to see a guy like Manny Ramirez just meshing with all those young players. Again, maybe he would have. Maybe he would have been a different guy. But seeing how he went to the Dodgers and it turned into Mannyville, it would have been weird to see him taking the spotlight away from the young players and how that would have all played out. The Marlins at the time were about a game and a half, two games out of first place in the NL East. So Manny Ramirez could have very well been the guy that put them over the top. And the numbers that he put up with the Dodgers were phenomenal, if you remember. After his trade to the Dodgers, he posted a 396 batting average he put up a 489 on base, 743 slugging and a 1232 OPS. That was in 53 games. He slugged 17 home runs and drove in 53 RBI. So he if you scale that out, he would have had one of the best seasons in MLB history. And obviously it's just 53 games, but 53 games is a third of the season. That's crazy. He would have had over 50 home runs, and he was flirting with a 400 batting average. Obviously, the batting average is the harder thing to sustain when you scale things out. But just how productive he was, I don't think there there couldn't have been a more productive player in baseball over those last 53 games of the season. And Manny was 36 years old. I think he was feeding off of that Mannyville. He was loving a new environment in L.A., and a fresh start was just what he needed, and he helped them get to the playoffs. And that was obviously a good move for the Dodgers. For the Marlins, I don't know if he would have done the same. But let's assume he did the same. That 2018 had several holes, even though they were overachieving. They had no solid lefties in the bullpen. They were struggling to get left-handed hitters out really badly just really badly they had a major catching problem and this trade wouldn't have addressed either of those issues jeremy hermita was a pretty solid outfielder manny ramirez would have made the outfield obviously much worse defensively and i think that's more important in a place like pro player stadium joe robbie stadium whatever it was at the time i can't keep up but whatever that stadium was called at the time in that football park he would have struggled defensively no matter where you put him right field was kind of spacious Left field, you had the wall, though he was used to playing that at Fenway Park. Didn't mean he played it very well. And there was also more space from left to left center than in Fenway Park. He definitely would have been exposed a bit more. And that would have been a little bit of an issue. And obviously you can't hide him with the occasional DH and keep him from playing in the field. Let's say he puts up those offensive numbers that he put up in LA. And that's enough to propel the Marlins into the postseason. There is no way, even though I would just love to have seen a Marlins postseason series after 2003. I was very young then, and then after that, as I became a very diehard fan, I didn't see much. That 2008 year was the most exciting baseball season I had enjoyed since I was a little kid in 2003 and barely remember it, being that I'm just going on 23 years old. But I remember very vividly that 2008 team and the struggles that they had and looking back on it You know, it's spot on. They couldn't get left-handed hitters out and they could not get production or really consistent defense from behind the dish. And obviously they were young and I don't think that rotation would have done very well in the postseason, though they also were overachieving. Of course, you just want to make it to the postseason and that would have been a great win for the Marlins to just make it to the postseason. That young team, who would have known what would have happened if they made the playoffs that year? What the Marlins would have done the following season knowing that they had a core of young players that could make the postseason. Maybe they invest a little bit more in payroll. Maybe things go differently, but you can't really look at it that way because we don't even know if they would have made the postseason. What we do know is that the Marlins would have traded Mike Stanton, later Giancarlo Stanton, which would have ultimately been not worth it. Hermida ended up really being expendable when you look in hindsight, and Tucker was a large disappointment in his professional career. If the Marlins could have swung that deal without Stanton, I'd say absolutely. Nothing to lose if we're looking at it with hindsight. But at the time, I still would have been against that deal because Tucker was still a promising young pitcher and Hermida was a young outfielder that you didn't want to give up on. So it was pretty curious that the Marlins were considering such a strange deal for a guy that probably wouldn't have been on the team beyond that season. And if he was, it wouldn't have been much more than one year after that. He was 36, and the Marlins' payroll was hardly over $20 million how are they going to pay Manny Ramirez, who his salary was basically the entire Marlins payroll? It's just not going to happen. When you look at all of that, the trade really made no sense. And the Marlins could have used some of those pieces that they decided were expendable and got pieces that could have actually helped them be better. I do remember the Marlins got Arthur Rhodes, and that did help with the lefty issue out of the pen. But overall, you're really not looking to help your team in an analytical standpoint. I know this is 12 years ago, but you're just going for the sexy trade there, which is so uncharacteristic of that previous ownership. And it was just a bizarre season all around. The Marlins definitely could have found a better piece. I'm not going to sit here and remember who was available at the deadline in 12 years ago. But I can promise you, With the package that they were willing to give up, or almost give up, whether Stanton was the hiccup or not, or whatever it was, they might have been better off just trading for Jason Bay in the reliever because of the aforementioned issues with the bullpen. And Jason Bay is a better defender and was younger, and maybe the Marlins could have Locked him up for at least a reasonable deal. He ultimately would have been pretty disappointing with the Red Sox, so maybe the Marlins dodged a bullet there. The whole trade, in a nutshell, kind of seems like a shit show. And the Dodgers ended up making an okay move without giving up too, too much, and they made the playoffs because of Manny. Ultimately, did not do much more after that, but it was a cool little stint there that he had with the Dodgers, and that was pretty much his last good stint in the MLB. And that was kind of how he wrote it out. Reflecting, Mike Stanton makes the trade a great dodge by the Marlins, and it's very good that they didn't end up making the deal. And that was one of those, like I said in the beginning, where you look back and you say, wow, thank goodness the Marlins didn't do that one. As cool as it would have been to see Manny Ramirez in a Marlins jersey, as bizarre as that would have been, too. It wouldn't have been worth it because what the Marlins got from Stanton the subsequent years obviously is something that was more valuable than maybe 50 games from Manny Ramirez. Even though the Marlins weren't very competitive with Stanton, you have to consider the the things that he did for the organization, the production, the jersey sales, just having that cornerstone, the MVP, just those things that he brings to those core Marlins fans, those young kids that had a player to watch, a player to love. Stanton was that guy, the franchise piece for the Marlins for a while. So in hindsight, we're going to categorize that one as a thank goodness. And I'll move on to the next trade after the break. So this deal that almost was, I'm taking it with a grain of salt. I'm going to talk about it because I'm assuming that it had to have been a deal that almost was. But I also rarely believe many of the things that David Sampson says. That being said, there's not really any reason to lie about this to make this up because there's nothing for David Sampson to gain in telling the story, which seems to be the rule of thumb with this guy. If there's something to gain, maybe he's lying. If there's something that he could maybe hide or protect himself, you take it with a grain of salt. But sometimes he tells some unique stories, I have to admit, though I do not like to listen to His show. I don't really read much that he tweets. Don't follow him because I just think he's toxic. He seems like he actively roots against the Marlins. I do think that this actually almost happened and it would have been a very interesting deal to say the least. And we're going to dive into whether it was a bullet dodged or a deal that maybe the Marlins should have made. It's a Jose Fernandez deal that allegedly almost happened between the Marlins and the D-backs. And before I get into this, I just want to make it clear that when considering whether this trade would have been a good or bad move for the Marlins in this hypothetical, you can't factor in Jose Fernandez's death to the consideration of whether it would have been a good trade or not because you just can't think that way. And it also just really doesn't make any sense because, okay, maybe he wouldn't have passed away if he went To Arizona. You just can't think that way. I just want to talk about it from a purely baseball standpoint. I just wanted to throw that out there because before I go into this really deep and talk about All of the potential pieces That could have went Back and forth I know someone's Going to be out there And be like Well maybe he wouldn't Have died It would have been A good move The Marlins would have Got something Like I don't do that Just don't do that I hate playing that game Especially when you're Considering somebody's life You just can't think About things that way So sorry for that rant But I just wanted To put that out there So we're just going To be talking about What Jose Fernandez His value was at the time And we're assuming That he would have Never died And continued playing In the big leagues Producing at about The same level That he was at the time If you remember he was a guy that was repped by Scott Boris. The Marlins had offered him a extension that year or the year before this trade almost went down and he turned it down. And the Marlins were very skeptical on their ability to be able to re-sign him. That is all stuff that David Samson said, but I do remember those reports coming out at the time as well around 2015. The part where we won't know, it's kind of hearsay is that David Samson said the contract offer topped $30 million, which would have been the largest ever, to a pre-arbitration pitcher. But then Samson says he couldn't recall the exact terms. So again, that guy, you got to take it with a grain of salt. The trade, which he said would have went through, and it was Arizona that turned it down, was a five-for-one trade with Patrick Corbin, Brandon Drury, A.J. Pollock, and a couple other prospects to the Marlins just for Jose Fernandez. At the time, it looks like it would have been perceived as a pretty good haul for the fish, though it's hard to put a price tag on a guy like Jose Fernandez. And with the numbers he was putting up at his age and the projectability, he was entering that kind of priceless range, the type of player that never gets traded because they're just so valuable. I wouldn't dare to say quite Mike Trout, but you can try to imagine what a package would look like for a guy like Mike Trout or even like Walker Buehler. Imagine a year or two more of Walker Buehler production, what kind of package it would take to pry him from the Dodgers. It's kind of unfathomable, right? So it's hard to really conceptualize what is a accurate and worthy value for guys that are that young, that projectable, and that good already. That's the tough part with these deals. It's, it's almost never enough, right? And that's the weird thing. But as I hop in my time machine and try to consider how I would have looked at it at the time, this is a deal that looks like it would have been good for the Marlins. Patrick Corbin was a southpaw, highly touted, and seemed to be just getting better and better. He was a late bloomer with baseball, didn't start playing until high school, Went to community college, then got drafted, and just got better and better every professional season. I've talked about him in the past when comparing him to some other Marlins prospects. Of course, we've seen now Corbin recently signing the big deal with the Nationals and having a really good season with them. He was an All-Star in 2013, so that would have been two years before the trade would have went down. But he was also coming off of an injury. He hadn't pitched in 2014, had come back in 2015, looked decent. Again, still getting back into his groove only through 85 innings. But he was just a year and a half or two removed from an all-star season. And his last full season, he was an all-star racking up 208 innings and was still only about 25 years old at the time. So the Marlins would have been getting a young southpaw in return with projectability and obviously a guy that ended up turning into a very good young pitcher. Then you go to A.J. Pollock. Again, go back into your time machine. And Pollock is still good today. He's still a productive, decent player. He was all right with the Dodgers, only played 86 games last year. Health has been the issue for him. But when you hop back in time, we didn't really know that completely yet. He did only play 75 games in 2014. But in 2015, he came back, played 157, and he was an all-star, won a gold glove. And he posted an 865 OPS, hit 20 home runs, swiped 39 bags, and won a gold glove. That is really good, obviously. So that's a guy that you want on your ball club. 27 years old, he just had his best offensive production. He's a gold glover, and he's going into Cavernous Marlins Park. That is a guy you want. So those two pieces right there already are a great start, a great, great start, no matter who you're trading, even a guy as good as Jose Fernandez. Then Brandon Drury, the third piece, at the time was considered one of the better prospects in the Diamondback system. The thing is, Drury was not highly touted in general. He was a late pick in 2010, going in the 13th round to the Braves, ultimately making his way to Arizona. He was still one of their top 10 prospects, actually ranked as high as three in the preseason of 2015, was ranked fifth by the end of the season in 2015, had a phenomenal Triple A stint with Reno hitting 331 and only striking out 35 times in 63 games, showing the speed, ability to hit for consistency, and could play all over the infield. You were looking at a guy that, at his best, could be a very serviceable infielder. At his worst would be a great super utility guy with above-average production for a bat off the bench. A good third piece in the trade. This is where it's a little hard to kind of try and think about who else could have been in the deal because they said there were two more prospects. But looking at the Diamondbacks' top 10 prospects at the time, being in 2015, none of the players in those top 10 really ended up amounting to much other than Archie Bradley, who's obviously still playing and still pretty productive as a reliever. Brandon Shipley had a stint in the big leagues. He's been up and down. I'm honestly not even sure where he is right now. And then the rest of the guys... In that top 10, did not really do much. Ironically, Peter O'Brien was the number 7 prospect for the D-backs, ended up making his way to the fish, and I wouldn't be shocked if he was one of those five prospects, being a South Florida guy. Jose, at the time, was 22 years old, going on 23, had just come back from Tommy John, and had only made 11 starts in 2015, but showed that he was recapturing his old form. Pitched 64 innings, struck out 79, and pitched to a 2.92 ERA which ironically was the worst of any of his seasons but still obviously showing what he could do and then ultimately his final season he was fantastic going 16 and 8 with a 2.86 ERA punching out 253 in 182 innings we just know how good he was in that final season the Marlins were afraid to lose Jose ...and get nothing. That's every team's biggest fear. You have a young star, you want to keep him, you try so hard to re-sign him... ...you wait till the last moment, and then he's gone because he leaves for free agency... ...and you get nothing for him. That's the big fear of a team. With the Marlins then expecting him to go to free agency... ...it makes sense that the team was trying to get a nice little return. At the time, this trade makes a lot more sense than the Manny Ramirez trade... ...if you're going in your time machine. The Manny Ramirez trade when you put yourself back in time, made no sense back then. And you can probably find some old articles, fish stripe articles, opinion pieces, I'm sure, that were not on board with the potential Manny Ramirez trade. This deal, though, obviously, Marlins fans would have been furious. I know that, obviously, because he was a huge part of the Marlins organization. We had Jose Day every time he pitched. There was a jump in attendance. Everybody loved to watch this guy pitch. I have friends that aren't even baseball fans that were like, I would turn the TV on when Jose was pitching. So, of course, the Marlins would have been obviously making a big mistake with their relationship with their fans, which had already been just tarnished to a major degree. And trading a guy like Jose Fernandez might have been the last straw for many fans that were still hanging around though many had already lost their trust in the ownership well before that jose fernandez as the cult hero he was as the guy who was just this hometown hero and this guy that just seemed to rally the cuban and latin fans that just took so much pride in his american dream story it would have really had some major pr issues trying to justify that trade And I'm sure, I'm sure, I'm sure that David Sampson would have come out and said, he made us do this, he made us do this, we tried to offer him an extension, and he wouldn't take it. That obviously would not have gone over well with fans, and there would have been a lot of unhappy Marlins fans. On the baseball side of things, if it is true that he wouldn't have re-signed, that doesn't look like a bad deal. My only question is, why are you so quick to be open to a deal with a team? When you probably could have leveraged and had several different offers coming in, like the Marlins did with Miguel Cabrera, ultimately they picked the wrong deal because the Dodgers offered a much better deal featuring some of Matt Kemp, Clayton Kershaw. They could have got one of those guys. They ended up going with the Tigers deal, which on paper at the time looked good. They leveraged. They had another good deal offer with the Angels as well. This time... The Marlins seemed to, unless they had other deals on the table, the only thing David Sampson talked about was the deal they had in place with the D-backs. Seemed a little premature, and it seemed a little impulsive to just trade him that quickly, especially when he was still under team control. You could have had a little bit more time for him to show that he was fully back from his Tommy John. You still could have got some more production from him. The Marlins were still hoping to be competitive at that time. They had a good core. So they were going into 2016 hoping to trade Jose Fernandez. That makes no sense to me. So even though that trade is better on paper, what are you doing? What are you thinking? But again, that is the stupid ownership that the Marlins used to have, and it just doesn't make sense. If the Marlins were floundering in 2016, which they ended up doing, then maybe you trade Jose Fernandez midseason. You could probably get even more for him then. Maybe there's more to the story, but a lot of times when I try to give that old ownership the benefit of the doubt, there's usually not more to the story other than money, greed, and just pure incompetency. And that seems to be the case with just about every deal. I will say the Marlins made the right move backing out of the Manny Ramirez trade. If it was them that backed out, I believe it was. I will say with the Jose Fernandez trade, though, like I said in the beginning, it it ended up being a moot point because of his death. This would have been a huge mistake for the Marlins. And they dodged a bullet, a hypothetical bullet, if Jose Fernandez obviously didn't die That they didn't make that trade because AJ Pollock ended up not being the player that we thought he would be. Though Patrick Corbin ended up being good, Drury was just not what people thought he would be. Though Yankees fans were all hyped up on him, he just really he'll still be a big leaguer, he's still up and down, he still seems to last, but not a piece for Jose Fernandez. And then, whatever two prospects that the Diamondbacks would have given the Marlins would not have made the trade worth it, even if it was their number one prospect, Archie Bradley. There was no way that trade would have been worth it. Marlins ended up dodging a bullet there value-wise and dodging a bullet there PR-wise. But of course, we all know how that story ended. As much as I like to look forward to the exciting future of the Marlins, it is fun to look back in the past. Let me know if you guys liked me digging up some of these old stories talking about some of the old almost trades and some of the crazy little things that got lost in the shuffle over the years, especially in this time right now. It's kind of fun to look back. Let me know if you enjoyed this. I'll be happy to do more stuff along these lines. Hope you did. I will talk to you all soon. Stay safe and stay healthy out there.